Hey everybody, how is it going? Welcome to Pillars. It is always great to have you here. Of course, I am your host, Dylan Bowman, and today I am very excited to be joined by my North Face teammates and the long trail multi-day ultra phenom that is Corey Woltering. Corey has been in the sport for a long time now. I'm sure most of you know who he is, uh, but recently he has been making waves in the fastest known time movement that has been gaining a lot of steam, especially during COVID times. He, of course, set the speed record on the 1200 mile Ice Age Trail back in 2020. And then just a couple of weeks ago, he had another amazing run setting a new standard on the 350 mile Pinhoti Trail down in Alabama. I have been around the ultra world for more than a decade now, and though I've never done this stuff myself, I am just so impressed and intrigued by what it takes to get through these huge multi-day and sometimes multi-week journeys that are becoming increasingly popular for athletes in the sport, both as personal projects and now sometimes even as races with the rise of 200 plus mile events. And Corey has proven himself to be quite good at these epic undertakings. Uh, so he was a great person to talk to about what it takes, uh, how to prepare, how to manage sleep and gear and crew support and all the other complicated logistics necessary to make these heroic missions a little bit more approachable and a little bit less daunting. Uh, I plan to put this episode out this week because Corey was following up his Pinhody FKT effort with a run at the brand new Cocodona 250 mile race in Arizona, which was a very ambitious back-to-back -back effort that proved to be just a little bit too much for Corey in too close of a succession. Corey posted on his Instagram yesterday that he was forced to withdraw from the Cocodona 250 uh, early in the race due to just severe lingering deep fatigue from his effort on the Pinhody Trail. Uh, obviously not surprising at all. So kudos to Corey for giving it a valiant effort after such a deep, deep effort on the Pinhody Trail. And kudos to him also for making the smart call, listening to his instincts, uh, where his health and safety were concerned. I'm sure he will be back to fight another day. Um, the Cocodona 250 is going on right now and will be for the next few days. It's been awesome to follow. Um, I would definitely encourage you all to go check out the live coverage over on the Aravipa Running YouTube channel. I'll post a link to that in the show notes uh, to make your navigation easy. But good luck to all the brave souls who are currently out there on the course. It has been remarkable to see them so far. Um, I might put up another episode later this week where I'll talk a little bit more about my own FKT project on the Backbone Trail in Southern California, which I did just a couple of days ago. So stay tuned for that too, if that's something that interests you. Uh, for now, it's all about Corey. Please welcome the Cornfield Cowboy, Mr. Corey Waltering.
Mr. Corey Waltering joins us from the open road outside somewhere in Nebraska. Corey, how's it going, man? Where are you? Uh, pretty good. Yeah. So I am in the Starbucks parking lot in York, Nebraska. It's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. The glamorous life of a, a trail and ultra runner often living out of the, the back of vans and trucks and cars and constantly on the move. And it seems like you've obviously been on the move, uh, nonstop for the last couple of weeks. Uh, of course, just finishing the Pinhoti trail FKT, an amazing five day vision quest that we're going to talk about in detail. And now you've been sort of traversing back and forth across the country. Um, but you know, generally, uh, how are you feeling? I know you, you finished the trail. What was it? Seven, 10 days ago at this point, how are you feeling, uh, now with a little perspective after such a, a huge mission? Yeah. Um, I actually feel great. So the awesome thing is, um, it was like, I, after I got actual sleep, like that next day, like everything is perfect. I was like, I feel great. <laughs> Everything's good. Um, so I think the big thing was I just needed sleep. Um, but now looking back on it, um, I've been on the go since I finished, um, like had to get back from like Georgia back to Vegas and then had a Bronco delivered to Illinois. So I flew back to Illinois, um, to pick up the Bronco. And then I've been driving for a couple days now. Amazing. Amazing. Cool, man. Well, um, let's sort of dive right into it. Obviously we're going to get to the Pinhoti stuff and we'll probably spend the bulk of our time discussing that, but obviously, uh, you've, this wasn't your first long trail effort and you've been in the sport for a while now and most people will know you, but for those who maybe are learning your name for the first time after seeing what you just did on the Pinhoti trail, maybe just give a brief synopsis of kind of who you are, where you're from, what you do and, uh, sort of your experience in the sport as an athlete so far. Yeah. Um, so I'm from Ottawa, Illinois, a small town of like 18,000 people. Um, I had no idea what trail running was even like six years ago. Um, so it's kind of wild to think that I've gone off the deep end since then. Um, but yeah, so I was a 200, 400, 800 meter runner all through junior high, high school, college. Um, and then had a swimming background, soccer background, and basically kept getting injured in college. So bought a bike and got into triathlon, um, qualified for the half Ironman world championships twice and thought that I wanted to become a professional triathlete. So I moved to Boulder because that's apparently what people do when they <laughs> want to go pro for triathlon and, uh, quickly realized that that's just not what I wanted to do anymore. Um, but, uh, I started hanging out with a bunch of trail runners and loved it. So they were like, Hey, like one of my friends is like, Oh, I need a pacer for the Leadville 100. And I'm like, I don't even know what Leadville is. And like a hundred miles of what, and like, what exactly do you need me to do? Cause I had never even like heard of ultras before. Yeah. Um, and so I paced at Leadville for like Winfield back over Hope Pass down to Twin Lakes um, and absolutely loved it. So basically I told my triathlon coach that I was going to quit triathlon and focus on trail running. And, uh, that seems to have been a good decision. It seems to have been a good decision. Indeed. I'm curious about this triathlon thing. So, I mean, because you had a swimming background in triathlon, that's a huge advantage. It's much easier to go pro 
if you have that swimming background than it is for somebody who was only a good runner to come into the sport and try and pick up the swimming discipline. I guess it's easier for swimmers to get good at running later in life than runners to get good at swimming later in life. And you had both those skill sets. So what was it about triathlon that, that put you off? Was it just the, I guess more, uh, yeah, ridiculous training necessary, the training hours that you have to put in, uh, for all three sport disciplines or what was it about trail running that made you wanted to pursue that professionally rather than triathlon? Yeah. Um, I was a horrible open water swimmer. Um, and so like for me, like my swimming background is absolutely useless when it came to triathlon, uh, which is really funny because, um, because like I should have been someone that, like triathlon seemed like it'd be a very logical choice for me. Um, but I was just so bad in open water. Um, so by the end of my triathlon days, like I, I was spending 12 to 15 hours a week on the bike. Um, and I was also in the pool six or seven days a week and I was only running maybe three days a week. Um, and at that point it was just, I really didn't enjoy, uh, that amount of time on the bike. So what was it about that initial Leadville experience that, that spoke to your soul? I mean, it's funny because I identify with that as well myself, because Leadville was sort of the thing that I learned about that gave me an introduction to trail and ultra running as well. And that sort of was the pivotal moment in my career where it become, became my sort of full-time obsession. And now you know, this is more than a decade at this a decade ago at this point. So tell me about that experience pacing your friend at, uh, at Leadville. And was it one of those moments where you were like, okay, I need to look for the first opportunity that I can tackle something like this myself. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, so it was like everything from just like driving into town, seeing the mountains and then just the excitement that everybody had at the pre-race meeting, um, to like just pacing and being out there and seeing everybody on the course and just really, um, I don't know. It was just like a magical moment going over hope pass and seeing people going both, both directions and like actually enjoying that because uh, like I, I'd think back to like triathlons and stuff and he'd be on these like three or four loop, like out and back half marathon courses. And, like everybody just looks like they're suffering. Like nobody looks like they're <laughs> actually having fun. Yeah. Uh, and so like, that was just like, Oh, like people can actually exercise for like a lot of hours and actually enjoy this. Like, this is awesome. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. You know, this is something I've talked about a lot in that, I see as a huge advantage for our sport compared to triathlon or obstacle course racing is when people experience it. And especially with the advent of social media, YouTube, things like that, when they have the visuals of people out exercising and being in beautiful places and also accomplishing these sort of transcendent, uh, things in their lives that sort of change them as, as people, you know, you can accomplish that in an Ironman as well, but in order to do so, you sort of, a lot of times have to do it on sort of a contrived course where, like you said, you're just going back and forth on a bike path just to accomplish the distance for you and your experience as a trail and ultra runner. It seems like, obviously you said you just sort of like jumped into the deep end, but you 
took a somewhat progressive approach in the beginning before now you're like really focused on the deepest of deep ends. And I want to get to that, but yeah, like talk about the progression that you've had within the sport and why it is that it seems like now just personally as an observer, as a fan of yours, you seem to be more focused on the supervision quests, the ultra long, long races and, and personal projects. Yeah. Um, so I raced the, my second, half Ironman world championships, like in mid September, uh, early September. Um, and then three weeks later I ran my first marathon. Um, and it was really funny cause my, my coach at the time was like, uh, your longest run is like 16 miles. Like, I really don't think that you're going to enjoy this marathon. Like maybe we should rethink this. And I still signed up for it and did it anyway. Um, I ran 237 and was like, yeah, I think I'm going to run. And so he's like, yeah, I think you should probably run. He's like, let's forget about this triathlon stuff and, uh, let's run. So, um, I signed up for my first ultra, like maybe two months after that. Um, because someone on Instagram is like, I don't know if your baby legs could handle an ultra. So I'm like, I'm going to go do an ultra now. <laughs> um, which was just really funny because it was Malibu Canyon. Um, and that race is like a two loop course with like almost 7,000 feet of climbing. Um, and I finished third there and was like, okay, I really, really, really like the sport. Um, and so then that next year I signed up for like the Leadville trail marathon, uh, silver rush 50, um, a couple other races and then tunnel Hill. Um, and it was just weird because I had like the trail strength, but then still had like some of my road speed. And so like at my first attempt at like a flatter 50, I think I ran like six eighteen at tunnel Hill. And it was like, I was like, I don't know, that's pretty solid. Um, but then it was like, hmm, like, I wonder how much faster I could go. So I, I was living in Leadville at the time. I actually moved to Leadville. Like, that's how much I loved yeah. Leadville that I moved there um, <laughs> shortly after pacing for the 100. And I moved there for about a year. Um, but then uh, finally realized that you can't really train for marathons that well living in Leadville. Uh, cause like speed work is not speed work. Up yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. VO2 max is like seven minute pace at that point. You're not, it's not a great place to get in PR marathon shape. Is it? No. And yeah. so it was just like, all right, I guess, uh, I guess I have to move from here. Uh, if I really want to make this work. So then I moved down to Denver for a hot second and then out to Vegas, um, for a while. Um, and basically from living in Leadville plus putting in just like marathon type workouts and all that stuff, I ended up going back to Tunnel Hill that next year and running, uh, five 30. Um, mm -hmm. and so that was kind of what got me noticed in the sport. Um, but also just like, I really, I really enjoyed the monotony of basically running the same pace for 50 miles, mm -hmm. uh, which is funny because that's one of the things that I didn't enjoy about like marathon training or even like triathlon training, but huh. yet racing it, it was totally fine. Um, but yeah, so then after that, um, I got into Western States with one ticket into the lottery and that just absolutely was wild. Um, <laughs> because like, even though I enjoyed pacing and crewing at Leadville as I was like, Oh, I don't think I'd ever run a hundred miles. They're like, that's just crazy. 
Um, and, uh, but then, but then I don't know, life is funny. And what I said, I'd never do ends up being what I end up doing. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and I mean, so Western States is my second 100. My first is the Dune ones, Dunes 100 down in Florida. Um, and it's basically a hundred miles on sugar sand and sand dunes. Um, and oh it was in, gosh. yeah, and Brutal. it was, it, it was because it was like February of 2017 and it was 87 degrees heat index of like 106, I think. Um, and so like everybody just melted on this thing. Mm. Um, but it was fun. Like, uh, right after the race, I said, I'd never do it. Uh, I said, I'd never run a hundred again. Um, and then like within probably hours of finishing, I was already like, what can I race this spring? Like what 100 mile races are out there, you know? And so classic um, short-term memory failure by trail ultra runners. Yeah, absolutely. So like, I just, I don't know. I loved it though. Um, and so then I've done a couple other hundreds of done, um, like, but states at UTMF, which I still have to go back there because yeah. I did it on the snow year when I'm at mile 90 in the aid station as they had to cancel the race. It's so brutal. It was like, oh my gosh. Like, I could not believe that I'm just like, I'm like, I can't even read Japanese. I'm like, what does this say? And yeah. they're like, they're like, the race, race is canceled. canceled. I'm like, oh, yeah. I was like, come on. So yeah, just, just for people who are listening, who, who aren't as uh, big of fans or followers of yours or of the sport in general, poor UTMF has just had such a run of bad luck with, with weather. And a couple of years ago when Corey did the race 2019, uh, there was a big sort of rain and snowstorm in April when the race was taking place and about, yeah, 20, 25 hours into the race, they had to to cancel it. And so people who are still on the course in your case went 90 miles and only to uh, be pulled off and told good job, come back some other time. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> so, so you've had some experience like running ultras and, and some hundred milers, but then last year you did the ice age trail, um, and the, in your, uh, sort of near, near home in the Midwest, there, 1200 mile, amazing FKT effort over the course of, uh, what was it like 21 days, 20, 21 and a half days. So just an immense effort. That was what seems like your first kind of multi-day super long trail experience was that kind of because it seems like since then your interest has really shifted to these monster undertakings so it's not only just a 50k 50 miler maybe the occasional 100 miler now you did ice age and now pinhoti and we'll talk about what you have coming up as well but the ice age trail was that sort of what launched you into this and what is it about these monster efforts that is intriguing to you is it just are the shorter distance races too boring now (laughs) no uh short races are fun um yeah so i raced eco challenge fiji um in 2018 um yeah wait no 20 2019 was eco challenge um and that was like my first experience with anything that is multi-day. Um, but oh, I mean, right. it, yeah. 
but it's like it's so much water and it's so much paddling and it's other things that it's not necessarily even that much like time on feet um and so that was kind of interesting um that was like the first time i've had to deal with sleep deprivation um but in terms of like a output level i wouldn't say that it was necessarily um the hardest thing that i had done just because of the pace that we were moving at um but i mean when you live in the middle of illinois like you're not going to be known as a great you know paddler or sailor or anything like that so you just you get through it um but then Ice Age, um, I, I did Ice Age because I was bored. Um, like COVID had canceled all of our races. I was in Illinois at home, just sitting there. Like, what do I do? I had just run like every street of Ottawa and then was like, all right, like I need something else to focus on because I will absolutely go nuts just sitting here because Illinois closed like their trail system when COVID first hit. Mm. So like we had like two or three months that we just couldn't get out on any trails, but the ice age trail in Wisconsin is open. So I'm like, this looks more and more appealing every day. Um, so finally I was like, you know what? I have the time, I have the resources, like I'm just going to go after it. And so I took three weeks to plan this and then threw a crew together, threw the plan together, um, in three weeks. And then it was like, here we go. We're going for it. Um, and it, it worked. Yeah. Um, like that's about all I can say about that. Like it worked. Um, uh, I mean, most people would take, you know, a couple months to plan for something like this. And I was just like, yeah, we have three weeks to plan it and go. Yeah. It's amazing, man. And I know you've done a lot of sort of interviews and told the story a lot, so you don't need to go into too much detail, but I'm curious about, um, kind of what you learned from that ice age trail experience that informed this most recent effort on the Pinhoti trail. Was there anything that you did particularly well or something that you screwed up at ice age that you think helped you, uh, to do the Pinhoti trail just this past week in such a strong fashion? Yeah, I think, uh, one of the big things that I learned is just, um, being able to take in food and fluids. Um, so like before ice age, (laughs) I basically went to Walmart and bought a bunch of like canned pastas and canned soups and would basically just sit down and eat a can of cold soup or cold spaghettios, whatever, and then go out and run a mile or go run a 5k or whatever and see how it felt in my stomach. Um, and so I probably tried out like 15 different types of soup, um, and pastas, <laughs> just trying to figure out like what one I like or what like three I like. Um, because basically I knew going in that I had to have five foods that I could eat no matter what. Um, mm. and like, I need to be able to eat these for 21 days and it doesn't matter if I'm sick of how they taste or whatever. I know that I can get them down and they'll work. Um, cause I was pushing anywhere from 6,000 to 8,000 calories a day on the ice age trail. Um, and so it was kind of wild because, um, like it ended up being spaghettios with meatballs, um, chicken and stars soup, um, and then like, uh, hamburgers and chicken sandwiches from the quick trip gas station up there. Um, and like, those are the foods that's like, no matter what is happening, I can still eat this. Um, so with Pinhoti, 
uh, we we basically went to Walmart and bought like all of their SpaghettiOs with meatballs and all of their chicken and star soup. And we didn't know if there'd be any gas stations that we'd able to get, we'd be able to get sandwiches or not. So I basically was like, those are the two foods that I'm going to eat for five days or whatever and get this thing done. Um, and it worked. (laughs) Yeah, it worked. Well, yeah. What a, what an interesting uh, takeaway from, from I say, just go to Walmart and stock up on the uh the soups and the uh yeah the the canned foods and just keep shoveling as much as you can how do you bounce back from something like that like 21 days out on the ice age trail it took you three weeks to plan it it took you three freaking weeks to do it so i'm imagining it was something that forced you to tap the bottom of the well in terms of your personal energy storage um how'd you bounce back from that because it seems like you've bounced back really well you've raced a few times this year to sort of set you up for Pinhoti. what was the recovery like after such a huge effort uh the recovery was awful um <laughs> like i woke up for the first three days after i finished uh ice age uh, thinking that I still didn't have the record. So I was still waking up at like five 30 in the morning every day. And I'd like wake up my crew and be like, why are we not out on the trail yet? And no like, way. Yeah. Like, it, it, yeah. Like the first day that I did that, they're just like, hi, you're funny. And I'm like, no, I'm not being funny. I'm like, why are we not out on the trail? And they're like, you literally just set the record like 12 hours ago. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, like i guess i did i guess i can go back to bed but then like the next two days after that the same thing happened um and so it's like once you do something like that just over and over and over it just kind of becomes like ingrained in you that you just wake up and go so like i was like waking up and i'm like great i'll be ready in five minutes like i already have running clothes on here we go and then it's like wait a second like i didn't have to do that um and then sleeping like my sleep is so messed up after ice age um i would sleep for maybe maybe three four hours at a time um so i'd fall asleep at like 1 a.m and then wake up at 4 or 5 a.m um but then the craziest part for me was every afternoon at like 2 or 2 30 i'd just get extremely tired and i would just fall asleep no matter what i was doing no matter where i was at Mm. and i'd fall asleep for two or three hours so it was one of those things where it's like i had to make sure that i wasn't like driving I had to make sure that I wasn't like out on a bike or something at that time. Cause I mean, it didn't matter what I was doing. I would just be like, out. Wow. Amazing, man. Yeah. I've never done anything multi-day like that. And I'm just fascinated with not only the logistics of accomplishing something like that, but the aftermath, the consequences and yeah, how both your body and mind come to terms with being finished with something like that. It's uh, it's really interesting to learn. So let's move on and talk about Pinhoti. Um, what motivated you to put this on your radar? When did it sort of come into your mind after Ice Age? And what was it about it that that sort of spoke to you and you deemed worthy of your effort this year? Yeah. Um, Pinhoti really wasn't supposed to happen this year. Um, I was originally going to go after the AT, um, starting in basically late April ish. Um, but the AT actually put out a thing, you know, just asking people not to through hike it this year, just because some of the smaller towns are being hit really hard with COVID. 
Um, and I was like, yeah, well, I can, I can understand that. And I don't exactly travel with the smallest crew. Um, so, uh, we wouldn't be able to like, we, we'd be noticed. So I was like, I'm just gonna, it's like, I'm just gonna, I'll sit this one out. Um, so then, uh, I was going to go after the Arizona trail, um, and string bean was actually starting the Arizona trail in March. And so we were going to start on the same day. Uh, and basically just race it to the finish. Um, but I ended up injuring my back in early March and, uh, just Arizona is getting just insane snowstorms to the point that I didn't feel comfortable putting my crew in a position that if they had to get me off of the trail somewhere, um, that I didn't think it'd be easy for them to get me off. Mm -hmm. So um, so with that, it's like, there's just too much snow. I'm like, you know what? Like I backed out of that. Um, and so then I kind of just didn't have a plan. Um, and so I signed up for like still house hundred K, um, in the Chattanooga area and flew down to that race and ended up dropping out of that at the first aid station. So like mile 13 with like a, just my back issue is back and I'm like, okay, like I need to get this fixed. Like we need to just slow this down. Um, but I saw a great chiropractor down there and like the issue I'd been dealing with for almost two months was basically completely fixed in like an hour. Um, and so then I just started looking to see it was around and Pinhody was around. So I'm like, great, here we go. And this is like 10 days out from starting. Okay. So you're in Tennessee and you sort of are looking around for, for what's around that you can sort of turn your attention to and Pinhody was the easiest one. Did you, were you just staying in the South? Cause it looked like you did some training, uh, out in Las Vegas. What, what was the, the training like? Like, how did you get yourself prepared? I mean, it sounds like you were sort of in race mode and thinking about the Arizona trail and signing up for this hundred K that you, you dropped out of. And then Pinhody came on your radar. It wasn't like you were training specifically for it. Um, but yeah, like what was the, the buildup for the Arizona trail like? And I mean, like, I know you did, you did the black Canyon double. So you did the hundred K and then the 60 K the next day, which is just bananas to me. I'm assuming that was kind of in preparation for the Arizona trail. Is that where you hurt your back and, uh, talk about your training a little bit. Um, yeah, so I actually hurt my back at Coldwater Rumble 100 miler, um, back in January. Um, and it's been just like this really weird buildup, um, because I got COVID in November of last year. Um, and so I basically, uh, couldn't breathe when I was running uphill or like even walking uphill, uh, for about seven weeks after getting it. So I struggled with it from November till early January. Really? Um, yeah. Um, it was bad. Like I, yeah, it was definitely the worst I've ever felt for just anything. Um, Talk about that a little bit, because I mean, I haven't had anybody on who's had COVID and I know a few people in my personal life, but not athletes who've gotten yet. So talk a bit about what it was like in sort of the acute phase. And then, yeah, like you were saying that the seven weeks, um, until you were feeling a little bit better. Yeah. So, uh, the first week of it was basically just felt like a sinus infection. Um, as in Flagstaff, I still ran, like 90 something miles and just felt just tired. But I mean, 
when you're also in Flagstaff at 7,000 feet and you're from sea level, then you're probably going to feel tired anyway. Um, so I was, I was just like, cool. Like, you know, it's, it's okay. No big deal. Um, and then the second week I'm like, Oh, like I have a, I was like, this sinus infection is lasting a really long time. I'm like, not really, not really sure about this, but okay. Um, and then I was just so tired that week that I think I ran like 40 miles. Um, and then the third week is actually what got me. Um, like I had about three days in a row of a fever of like 102, 103, um, just extreme fatigue. And then as I was sleeping, um, I'd wake up probably every hour or two, uh, basically feeling like I had a plastic bag over my head. So I just felt like I was suffocating. Um, and that happened just all night for three nights. And so at that point I was like, if this happens for another night, then I guess I'm going to have to go to the hospital, mm-hmm. um, and just see what happens. Um, cause I was like, uh, cause I just, I had no idea that it was going to get that bad. And so, um, like I didn't lose my sense of taste or smell, but I lost, uh, my appetite. Um, and so like I could, you know, make a meal that looked great, smelled great, and then just not want to eat anything. I love ice cream and I didn't even want ice cream. Um, so it's like, here I was in pretty decent shape. Um, and then all of a sudden it's like, I'm just losing weight, can't run, like just, it ended up being kind of a mess. And then after like those three bad days or so, like things kind of started to get better. Um, but the, just the lungs were not coming back. So like I'd get winded walking up a flight of steps. Um, like I'd have to sit down, uh, walking up steps sometimes. Like I couldn't run uphill. Um, could, like if it was more than honestly, probably a 2% incline, like I'd have to walk it. And so, Jeez. um, and so it was just super frustrating because I felt okay on, um, flat runs if it was completely flat. But other than that, like I was really struggling with that. And wow. so like mental, yeah. And it was like mentally, I'm like, how did I go from being in like really great shape? Cause I was actually supposed to be racing last December. Um, and I was like, oh, I'm in like really great shape to now it's like, I can't even walk up a flight of steps. And then for this to go on for six or seven weeks after that, I was like, I think that, you know, I may be done like actually racing competitively as like, really? this could be the, as like, this could absolutely be the end of that. Um, but the other thing that I was thinking about that was like, well, even if I can't race to like maybe win a hundred mile or a hundred K or something, I'm like these longer FKTs, you don't really need to be able to, you don't really need to be able to run uphill. You can hike uphill. And so, and so in my head is like, I at least have like a backup plan of what I'd like to do if I'm, if I'm able to, Um, but it was just, it was kind of wild though. Wow, man. Well, I'm so glad you, you pulled through and uh, hopefully you're feeling better now on those uphills and uh, with more time between you and the infection and hopefully it'll only get better. But back to this kind of question about training, like doing the Black Canyon 100K followed by the Black Canyon 60K on consecutive days, was that with the intention that those were two training days to get you ready for the Arizona Trail? And I guess just more generally, how do you you think about training for these monster multi-day efforts compared to a traditional ultra marathon? Yeah. Um, so cold water and then black Canyon, the double there, like those are all just training things for, uh, the Arizona trail. Um, and 
I don't know. In general, I, I would say that I don't really train for these specifically. I guess it's been more of like still recovering from ice age and then just getting back into the groove of being out there five, six, seven days a week um, mm-hmm. and putting in some bigger volume. Cause I haven't really been doing workouts um, or like a traditional workout, I would say, but instead it's like, Oh, let's go backpacking for two or three days. Or we're going to cover, you know, a hundred miles over two or three days and sleep out on the trail, go self-supported, mm-hmm. um, or doing these things where it's like, uh, I'm just going to hike for five, six, eight hours rather than going out and doing like a harder two, two and a half hour, three hour long run, stuff yeah. like that. Um, and so, uh, training like was really good in January, really good in February as out in Vegas, um, just trying to escape all of the snow in Illinois, uh, which it still snowed in Vegas a couple of times, uh, but that's okay. And then it was just wild because I injured my back, um, at cold water, but it would like come and go. And so training was still good. Um, but then went down to Stillhouse and just re-injured it there kind of. Um, but the fun part is in March, uh, I only ran, uh, six days in March, um, before doing Pinhody. Really? Yep. So th- this is one of the things that I was like, kind of curious about, and I guess Pinhody is a little bit different, but for something like the AT or the PCT or even the Ice Age Trail, I'm like, well, is it better to start a little bit out of shape or not in peak shape so that you can sort of work yourself into peak shape while you're out on the trail? But for Pinhody, it's five days as opposed to 21 plus for those longer trails. And so you probably do need to go in with a little bit more fitness. And it sounds like you weren't in like prime, prime form going into Pinhody. So let's talk now about the the effort itself uh, because I'm super curious to sort of hear a lot about it. I guess let's start with, for those who are unfamiliar, just where the Pinhody trail is and the statistics in terms of mileage and elevation and things like that. Yes. Um, so Pinhody trail is 349 miles, um, online, everything tells you it's 335, but it absolutely is not. Um, <laughs> and you felt those extra 15 for sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, cause like I found out that it was 349 miles, um, like the day before I started. Is that the um, worst thing ever? It's like when you're just in the like, of a race and you you think you have like 10K to the finish and somebody tells you you have 12K to the finish, you're like, no, no. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. And so it was just super funny because we, we stayed at the Pinhody Outdoors Center and uh, they're like, oh yeah, by the way, the trail is actually 349 miles. And I was like, that is not what it says online. That's not what like, I signed up for, bro. Yeah. I was like, I was like, oh my goodness. And so it was just kind of funny because I'm like, I don't know why I'm upset about this because I can't change it. But yeah. I was like, I don't know, 15 miles. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, it starts in Alabama, um, about an hour and a half south, uh, southeast of Birmingham, and then runs up to Georgia and ends outside of Dalton, Georgia. Um, and so it's, uh, 
it's a beast. It has about 52,000 feet of elevation gain over 349 miles. Um, and it's just like rocky, rooty, wet, like East Coast uh, type running. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing, man. So yeah, and actually I'm looking at your Strava file right now. And so it goes from sort of central Alabama to northern Georgia. And I'll link to this in the show notes so people can go take a look at this incredible effort that you posted on your Strava profile. Um, so, you know, the like in your social media and you had your your friends and crew out there providing awesome coverage for the duration of the, the effort. And it was really fun to follow along. But uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm curious about is the strategy of it all. And, and maybe this has to do with the existing FKT, but you chose to go, like you said, from Alabama to Georgia, but it looks like just from looking at your Strava file that going the opposite direction from Georgia to Alabama is actually a net downhill. And thus you would think to be the faster direction. Was there any reason why you decided to go the way that you did? Was it just because the existing FKT was in that direction or did you put any thought into it at all? Yeah, it was just the existing FKT was in that order. So I'm like, I'll just go that direction. Yeah. So now sort of talking a little bit about your experience and having sort of gone through all your social posts, uh, I'm really curious to hear kind of how things went down because you said something to the effect of after you finished in the post that you put up said something to the effect of that you were broken and, and broken early. So it seems like you hit a low point fairly early in the effort. So tell us a little bit about that, how you navigated it, what you were dealing with, things like that. Yeah. Um, it was, it was very interesting for me because, um, like ice age, uh, I, I wouldn't really say that I had very many lows over the 21 days. Like everything is just pretty steady. Everything felt, um, just pretty good, or at least as good as you can feel for 21 days. Um, whereas like this, it was like the first night was absolutely rough. Um, the temperature dropped to like 28 degrees overnight, 26 or 28. And then there, there was like a stupid river crossing that night also. So here we are like, freezing as we're crossing the river and I don't think I got to see my crew for I don't know maybe 10 or 12 miles something like that and so because that like I was just so cold and tired and wasn't expecting that that the cold is just zapping this energy out of me so as we're going into the second day um it was just funny because I told my crew I'm like we're not going to sleep on the first night we'll wait till night two to sleep um and I came into the vehicle at one point and I was like uh, I, I need like a 15 minute nap. Um, and everyone's like, Oh, like you're already taking naps. I'm like, yeah, I, I just need a nap to like do something to warm up. Um, and they're like, okay, I guess. Um, and so it was just like the cold that was unexpected was definitely like the first like major low that I hit. Um, and honestly, it was, I think I was just slightly behind on calories. And so like being behind on calories plus being cold is just using way too much energy. Um, and so like, we got that fixed. Everything seemed like it was good. Um, I had pacers that were coming on the second day. Um, like just things were, seemed like they should be turning around. 
And then like, for me, it was just a constant battle of like mentally being like, all right, do I want to do this or do I not want to do it? Because as much as uh, like Ice Age meant something to me, I don't know that Penhody, I was like necessarily that emotionally invested in it, uh, like the trail itself. Um, And so I think that's where there are like two like big differences for me. Um, Yeah. But uh, it, it was interesting because as the effort went on, even though I didn't hit my original goal of under 96 hours, um, I was still like more and more emotionally invested into it and the people that were coming out to pace and crew and all of that. Um, so by the end of it, I was like, well, there isn't really any doubt that I'm going to finish. And I'm like, I don't know if I'll get the FKT or not, but I'm absolutely going to finish this thing. Yeah. Uh, whereas like, whereas like after that first night, like I was ready to be done. Um, so interesting. So you felt more invested in Ice Age Trail because it is closer to where you grew up, closer to your home in the Midwest. And I, I think it's also fascinating, this idea of the cold actually being a huge energy suck. I mean, obviously everybody knows that running in the heat is difficult, but yeah, I can just imagine being out there alone that first night being much colder than you expect and the energy that you expend trying to keep yourself warm at night. That's probably a really good learning experience for future endeavors for you to, to take that uh, into consideration and make sure that you keep yourself warm, especially in those, those early nights. So, um, like in terms of the strategy behind the whole thing, you said that you were hoping to not sleep until the second night. Talk just about the strategy in general, because this is just something that I find fascinating and that people who are listening who are probably less familiar with these multi-day type efforts will also be curious about. So how are you thinking about your pacing strategy? How are you thinking about your calorie intake strategy and your sleeping strategy, any of those things that uh, you would think people would find interesting um, and relevant based on your experience? Yeah. So calories, uh, they're usually pretty simple for me. Like I always just want to take in uh, at least 300 calories an hour. Um, Sometimes I'm 300 to 400 an hour. Um, So uh, calories very super easy for me because there's a McDonald's by the start. So we're able to get like uh, breakfast burritos and chicken sandwiches and stuff like that. So that was fine. And then when I could see my crew, I could also have SpaghettiOs. I could have the soup, um, like perfect. Um, but like, because I was cold on that first night, I wasn't taking in food because I didn't want to use the energy to like actually like chew and just get food out of my pack and all this stuff. And so, and so it's like one of those things where it's like a super simple mistake that I know it's a mistake, but yeah, it's like, Oh, I've already been out here for 18 hours. So I'm like, Oh, like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, Plus like even when, when your hands are cold too, you're like too lazy to open up the gels and force yourself to eat. It's another great point about how the cold was probably underestimated in terms of how it would impact your, your effort. Sorry, keep going. (laughs) No. And so it's just, it's funny because it's like, I, I didn't think that 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 the cold was going to be that big of an issue. And then it just turned into being one of these things. I mean, we had three nights that were cold. And so like, uh, 
it, it ended up being a bigger issue than I thought it would be, but that's fine. Um, in terms of pacing, uh, my goal was, so we started at 10 AM because like most people start at like 4 AM, 5 AM, and they like to, you know, get the early start, have the full day of sunshine and all that. Uh, and apparently like watching the sunrise is fun or something. Uh, I'm one of those people where I, I just don't necessarily work on that schedule. Um, so, <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to start whenever I wake up. And it was just really funny because, um, I ended up waking up at, um, I think I woke up at like seven 30 or something. And I was like, perfect. If I wake up at seven 30, then we can make it to the trail by about 10 or so. And I think we'll start there. Um, and so we made it at 10 ish and totally fine. Um, but <laughs> it was just funny. Cause then we were like, okay, but if we start at 10 AM, we have to remember that uh, Georgia and Alabama are on different time zones. Oh, it's Central versus East Coast. Okay. Yep. So it's yeah. like we have to remember there are different time zones that we're going to be working with. And um, we have to remember that a day doesn't start until, you know, 10 a.m. that next morning. Uh-huh. So so it's like all these like little things that we're like, let's remember this because uh, on Ice Age, when I made the original spreadsheet of my original goal time, uh, I completely forgot like a 24 hour period in there because instead of it being like day like zero to one, I was just like day one, day two. And so <laughs> that like completely messed us up on Ice Age. And we discovered this with like, I don't know, probably at like mile 800 or something or like, oh, this totally makes sense why we thought we were so far behind, but we're actually now not behind. Yeah. Um, so then I was like, all right, let's make sure we're getting all this stuff good for this. Um, so yeah, that's just kind of how we did that. And how much, how much planning do you put into that? I mean, you're actually somebody who makes a spreadsheet and you have estimates in terms of how quickly you're going to be moving and therefore have calculations of when to expect you in certain places, or do you take more of a laissez-faire approach of just like starting at this time? I think it'll probably be at this time by the time I get here. Uh, are you somebody who's more precise and mathematical or somebody who is more like uh, we'll see how it goes type approach? Uh, I'm somebody that will send my crew a link of the spot tracker and just let them figure it out. Yeah, figure it out. (laughs) out, (laughs) Don't miss me. Don't freaking screw this up. Otherwise I'm going to blame you for it. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like I, yeah, I'm, I'm not really a spreadsheet type. The only reason I did it for ice age is because I had to know if there are campgrounds or if it was going to be a hotel or what. Yeah. Um, for this is like, we're not going to use hotels. I mean, as like, we're just going to be sleeping either on the side of the trail in the parking lot, you know, wherever. Um, so your your crew is probably completely destroyed at the end of this thing too, huh? Oh yeah. Um, like Kevin, who was doing a lot of social media and also acting as crew chief, like he slept maybe six hours total over the five days. Um, and it was actually really funny because when we finished, uh, finishes close to Chattanooga or like maybe an hour south or whatever. So then we, uh, we were getting a ride to the hotel in Chattanooga, but we hadn't booked one yet. So we didn't know what day I'd be finishing for sure. And Craig was getting ready to drop us off. And he's like, where should I take you guys? And Kevin goes, just take us to the trailhead. And I was just like, did he just say, take us to the trail? I was like, are we not done? He's like, oh my goodness. It's like, oh, no. 
It was just like, <laughs> what is happening right now? And I was like, oh, wait, no, we're done. It's like, yeah. I remember finishing this thing. And so, so, yeah. so he needed a crew chief at that point to get you guys yes. to the hotel. That's freaking hilarious. So let's talk yeah. about the sleep thing. Just while we're on the subject of the overall strategy, this is something that I also found mind-blowing in your social media posting when you said that you slept a total of four hours over the course of five days, were you planning to sleep that little or did you build in more sleep? And because you were moving maybe slower than you expected, you just had to keep pushing in times when you were hoping to, to sleep. Um, so I didn't really build in a ton of sleep to begin with. But then when I found out the trail was 349 miles rather than 335 or so, then that changed things a little bit. Um, And so basically, I was just looking at what the old record was um, and trying to be like, okay, we either need to get to this spot or past this before we can sleep for that day. Um, and we'd get to that spot, but it's like, I just wasn't getting enough time to even get a, a good sleep. So, um, like I, my first nap was like 15 minutes. Um, and I apparently was just like, so tired, um, that I didn't want to get up and they're like, now you have to get up and go. So I did. But then the second nap that I took was 15 minutes. And I think this is on day two, uh, night two, I should say, probably at around 4 a.m. or so on that second night. And I was just like, I I don't remember this, but I apparently, uh, when they woke me up, I'm like, we need to go to the nail salon and pick up the black uh, furry vest. And everyone just kind of looked at me and they're like, I think you need to lay down for 15 more minutes. <laughs> and it's just like, what? Like, I don't even remember this. And they're yeah. like, yeah, you were like talking in your sleep. And they're like, you, you're, you definitely needed 15 more minutes. So uh, that stop was a 35 minute sleep stop. And then they're like, sorry, you have to get up and go. Um, and then after that, like 15 minutes is all I got. Um, like just 15 minute naps after that, wow. like, uh, on a picnic table in a park. Um, I fell asleep on the ground as someone was using like the Theragun on my legs as I was just sleeping, like literally on some dirt road, yeah. um, just slept in the back of the van once slept in the back of the Jeep once slept in the back of the truck once, like just all of these different things, but it was all just like 15 minute stops. Yeah, man, that must just be absolutely exhausting. And when I sent you the original message on Instagram saying, Hey bro, come on the podcast. Let's talk about this. You're like, man, I need a few days. (laughs) I need to just catch up on some sleep. Were you experiencing that same thing that you talked about from the ice age FKT where you would just sort of be overcome with exhaustion and have to pass out wherever you were, or has it been a little bit better this time? No, this time it's actually been great. So like, uh, so after that, like the night that I finished, uh, we got to the hotel in Chattanooga, um, and I probably fell asleep around 1130 that night. Um, I was up at 530 the next morning answering emails that I just had been been ignoring for the last week. Um, and, and then stayed up that whole day, like completely fine. And then slept maybe like eight hours, uh, that next night and then like felt just normal. Wow. Um, 
Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's wild. It's funny because, you know, when I put up on Instagram that we were going to have a conversation to see if people had any questions for you about your effort, there was multiple people who were curious about this sleep deprivation thing. So is there anything from your experience, both on the Ice Age Trail and Pinhoti that you think is helpful for those uh, who are listening, who might want to tackle a similar objective and do it for speed and, and different ways that you think you can handle the sleep deprivation aspect of it a little bit better? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, uh, I don't use caffeine until after it's dark. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I stay away from caffeine all day long. Doesn't matter how tired I am. Doesn't matter if I'm struggling. I try to stay away from caffeine. And then also anything that's like super sugary, um, I'll save that for night, um, just because that kind of seems to work for me. Um, and then the best use of caffeine that I've found is if I'm going to lay down for like a 15 or 20 minute nap, then like drink a Red Bull or like a Starbucks espresso shot, like anything like that, right before you lay down and then just fall asleep for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and then wake up. And like, by the time you wake up, it's starting to kick in. (laughs) So it gives you like this, like it makes you feel like you've slept for hours when you've really only slept for like 15 minutes. They call that a nappuccino. I think, uh, I think this is something that, you know, tech executives and stuff do uh, to be more productive. And apparently it's also a good strategy for multi-day trail expedition. So that's really fascinating, man. Yeah. Cause I, I, like I said, haven't done anything like that myself, but I can just anticipate that the sleep deprivation component would be just really difficult to, to manage. And I like both those strategies to not do the sugary stuff until later. And also, yeah, save your caffeine for the nighttime or, or right before your naps. That's, uh, that's fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about the gear, uh, and that approach to things as well. Um, how did you think about, I mean, obviously you had your crew there, so it wasn't as if you needed anything in particular to kind of keep yourself safe for multiple hours or days on end, but I'm curious your approach to, to footwear. And the other question I had as it relates to gear is what the hell happened to your wrist, bro? You had like a, a wrist brace on, it looked like you maybe took a fall and, and sustained an injury or something. So talk about your gear and what happened with your wrist. Yeah. Um, the wrist, uh, what happened on day two, uh, I had my like wrist through the loop of my trekking poles, um, on an overnight section and started to fall. And so I like jabbed the trekking, trekking pole down to like stop the fall. Um, but as I did that, the strap, like just around my wrist, I really am not even sure what happened to it, but I ended up spraining my wrist from that. Um, and so like my wrist is swelling, like through the night of night two, um, and then into the third day. And I hadn't told my crew about it, um, until finally, like one person's like, what's going on with your wrist? And I'm like, Oh yeah, I fell yesterday. Like, um, well, I guess I didn't fall, but like stopped to fall. And they're like, come on. And says like, yeah. And, and so like, then we had to get on like the, we got on, uh, FaceTime with like a, physical therapist to see if we thought I sprained it or not. And they were like, yeah, it's probably sprained, but you'll be okay. Just put a brace on it. 
Um, so, but I like, I lost like mobility in my thumb. And so then because of that, like I couldn't use my trekking poles properly. And I was like, Oh, just like, you know, tie the trekking pole to my hand. And they're like, no, like you having your wrist through the loop is literally what sprained your wrist. So they're like, we're not going to tie a trekking pole to your hand. And I was like, Oh, I guess it doesn't make sense. Does it? Um, so it just created like the, another just obstacle there, but whatever. And so, um, yeah, it's finally getting better and I have the brace off now, like a week or so later, but, um, I like, it's, it's wild. Yeah. Um, definitely, definitely not an injury. I thought that I would have, um, during this thing. So yeah. I will say that, um, <laughs> in terms of footwear, I used our, uh, Endurus. Um, I just use that for everything. Um, just the extra cushioning. Um, I love it. Uh, it, it worked really well on the trails out there. Cause even though they are really rocky, um, they're, they're still, they still have sections where just having that extra cushion is like super key. And then you also have some road sections in there. Um, so you can run yeah. pretty well with them. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a great shoe. Just so people are who are listening is the North face endurance shoe, part of the new Vective line. It's a shoe that I basically do hundred percent of my training in as well. It's an awesome, awesome piece of gear. So, I mean, did you have multiple pairs? I'm just curious, like, do you, do you change your shoes along the way? Like when you get wet, obviously, like we said, there wasn't anything needed for real serious safety. I'm sure you had extra layers and stuff, but anything else gear related, uh, that you think might people might find interesting, um, that you figured out on this effort? Yeah. So, uh, I basically, I looked at the map to see what sections are going to have like the most stream and river crossings and stuff. And then from there, uh, I basically was like, okay, uh, we can go, you know, this is going to be a six hour stretch with the same shoes and socks. They're going to be wet, but like smart wool socks with our shoes, like you're going to be pretty fine with wet feet. Like you yeah. shouldn't be too destroyed. Um, so like, I would just try to every six hours or so, I would try to switch out a pair of shoes and pair of socks. Um, unless it is a super dry section, then I just go. Huh. Um, but overnight is where things like really started to fall apart a couple times, uh, for me because of just how cold it was plus having cold shoes, cold socks. Um, and, um, yeah, just, I mean that like having cold feet and cold, uh, hands is just like not fun. Um, uh, or at least cold and wet, I should say. Um, but other than that, I mean, there wasn't really a ton that I wished I had that I didn't have. Um, there's like one night that I probably could have used like our, um, future light rain jacket is probably a windbreaker. Yeah. Um, and like that would have been kind of nice, but that's just cause it was like one of those like really weird, just cold winds that kind of came in. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I mean, I don't know. I just, I, shorts and a t-shirt during the day and then i'd put on a base layer on top and tights on the bottom at night that's so awesome man well congratulations on such an awesome effort it's uh really fun to talk to you about it and learn about it um it seems like just a couple of days after you finished uh you went and spoke to some runners as they were about to embark on their own 100 mile journey i just saw this on on your Instagram as well, or maybe it was Kevin's Instagram. Um, it seems like you went and spoke 
uh, to some runners who are about to do the Ozark Foothills 100. Uh, so maybe give us a glimpse into what your message was to those runners before they set out on their own uh, adventure. Uh, what message did you leave with them based on your own profound journey there? Yeah, uh, that was really fun. Um, and so it, it came a little bit quicker than I thought it was going to, uh, cause I'd hope to finish like a day or two earlier. Um, so I was like, yeah, it's, it's totally fine though. Um, and yeah, it was just really fun talking to them cause we showed the video of the ice age trail FKT, uh, and then basically just opened it up to like a Q and a, um, is that and... video, is that video out from your ice age run or is yeah, that, that is that is on um outside tv and youtube oh i gotta check this out i haven't seen it yet yeah um but yeah so we showed that and then we did a q a and it was uh it was just fun because it was kind of a lot of the same questions that we're getting today but like a lot of people are more like just what keeps you going when you know things get tough or like what did you learn in your first hundred miler or things like that because mm -hmm. uh there were a lot of people that were running their first hundred milers and uh for me it's like honestly it's like fluids and uh, calories like those are the two big things like when you get into that dark spot like you just really have to think about it it's like are you hungry or are you actually upset? And like more times than not, it's, you're just you're hungry. hungry. Yeah. <laughs> cool, man. Well, that must've been fun. So let's talk about what's next for you. You said that you've been bouncing back really well. Obviously that can be a dangerous feeling to have, and you're definitely going to want to make sure that you recover fully before you do anything else crazy ambitious. But it seems like the Cocodona 250 is on your radar, which is coming up here very soon. Of course, for those who don't know, the Cocodona 250 is a race that's put on by Aravipa um, and one of these new you know, 200 plus mile races that are becoming more and more popular in our sport. So are you going to be doing the Cocodona 250? How are you approaching it, uh, both in terms of your recovery from the Pinhoti trail and whatever specific preparation you, you need to do for it? Oh, yes. Uh, I am absolutely going to be there. Um, I, I'm still trying to decide if I'm just going to take this as like, a fun 250 mile jog through Arizona, or if I'm actually going to try and race it. Um, and that's all just kind of kind of going to depend on what happens over the next week or so. Um, like I took all of last week, just super easy, hiked a couple days, like one hour hikes, no big deal. Uh, today I went on my first run since Penhody, just one hour, um, super chill and everything felt good. Um, and so now it's more just about keeping these like one hour runs going, but not really pushing the pace on anything. Um, just making sure the body's actually working how it should. Um, and then approaching Cocodona after that, I mean, it will be like a game time decision on whether it's going to be more fun or more race type. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where it's like, 250 miles seems super doable for me right now. It seems like super approachable and reasonable. Um, and so because of that, like, I'm, I'm just really excited for this experience. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I think that I'm feeling good enough that I should be able to race it. Um, but we'll see. 
Yeah. Well, we'll all be uh, anxiously awaiting. Uh, yeah, that that uh, fun little adventure. I'll be yeah excited to follow it. And I'm just looking at it now here online. And it's only two weeks away, man. I'm just like so impressed by not only your pinhody finish, but the fact that you're feeling strong enough to tackle what would be sort of a once in a lifetime type endeavor for the rest of us uh, just a few short weeks after Pinhody. That's amazing. So uh, one last question before we let you go, Corey, thanks for taking so much time. I'm curious about this Bronco thing. Are they now a sponsor of yours? You, you are, you're now broadcasting for those who are not watching this on YouTube and just uh, following along on the audio feed. Corey is broadcasting from the driver's seat of a fresh new Bronco and you just posted about it on your Instagram. So tell us the story about your new car. Is this a new sponsor for you? Because it looks freaking amazing. You look like an absolute natural in the driver's seat. So give a shout out if that's the case. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Uh, yeah, thanks, Ford. Um, so they are bringing back the Broncos, and there are about 10 ambassadors right now that all got them, and I just so happen to be one of them. Uh, yeah, so now here I am driving this thing around, and uh, a new trail crew vehicle, trail mobile, all that stuff. So uh, I'm pretty pumped about it. Like, it's it's really awesome. Hell yeah, dude. Well, I'm a Ford guy myself. I drive an F-150. I'm a loyalist as well, but yeah, the car looks awesome and I'm sure you'll put a lot of good miles into it and your crew will uh, be following you along the, uh, the Cocodona 250 supporting you in, in style in just a couple of weeks. So shout out to Ford and uh, yeah, congratulations on that deal. I think it's really cool to see non-endemic brands see value in athletes like yourself and give them uh, really, really cool and unique support. So congratulations on that. But Corey, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on, man. It's been absolute pleasure to, to catch up and uh, congratulations again on that huge achievement out on the Pinhoti trail. Enjoy a couple weeks of rest before your next adventure and can't wait to follow along at Cocodona. Yeah. Thanks. All right, bud. Take care. Thanks so much to Corey. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. I felt like I learned a lot about how to approach these amazing vision quest type missions. It's still completely terrifying to me, but never say never, as they say. I linked to Corey's Instagram feed in our show notes. Go give him a shout. Let him know if you enjoyed the show. Give him a follow so you can keep tabs on his ultra journey. I also linked to Corey's Strava file from the Pinhoti FKT effort. Go check that out if you need some inspiration or just generally want to have your brain melted a little bit to see what human beings are capable of. It is quite remarkable. Speaking of which, as I mentioned in the introduction, I also am linking to the Cocodona 250 live coverage happening right now in Arizona. Shout out to Aravipa 
for putting on such awesome live race day coverage and shout out to Jamil Curry, the chief of the Aravipa operation who is out there putting his money where his mouth is, so to speak. He is out running the Cocodona 250 himself and it has been really fun to follow from afar. Thank you guys so much for being here. If you do enjoy the show, please do share it with your friends. Please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. That always makes me feel really good. And if you like what we're doing with Pillars, you can download, subscribe to our app, both Android and iOS app stores. And uh, please do also follow us at Pillars on Instagram. Go to our website, pillars.com, subscribe to our newsletter. Keep track of all the things that we're doing in all those various channels. We're gonna also have some more really cool content going up on YouTube very soon. So go smash that subscribe button too, if you don't mind. Thank you guys always for being here. Love you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.